This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Christopher Harrison, a pediatric infectious disease specialist and professor of pediatrics at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. We'll be discussing neutralizing enterovirus D68 antibodies in children after a 2014 outbreak. Welcome, Dr. Harrison. Well, hello. It's good to be here. What are enteroviruses? Well, it's a tricky question you're starting with. Enteroviruses are both the name of a genus of viruses, and it's also the name of a species of a virus. And the genus includes rhinoviruses, which we're not talking about today, but it's important to know about them because they're so closely related. These group of viruses are single-stranded, non-enveloped RNA viruses, and the enteroviruses grow best in the gastrointestinal tract of humans and cause multiple kinds of diseases, most of which the public isn't aware of. You specifically looked at enterovirus D68 for your study. What makes D68 different from other enteroviruses? You just said there's a whole lot of them, so <laughs> please explain. What makes enterovirus D68 different is that it's not like most of the other enteroviruses, which cause mostly diseases outside of the respiratory tract. It acts more like a rhinovirus in that it causes mostly a common cold-type symptom. The enteroviruses that are not enterovirus D68 are ones that include poliovirus, which we know about from our past and for which there's a vaccine now. And there are some, like the Coxsackie viruses, which cause hand, foot, and mouth disease that some parents may have had their children diagnosed with when they go into the doctor. How common is, we're going to call it EV now instead of enterovirus, how common is EV D68 in the U.S.? EV D68 circulates every year in some capacity, except maybe the year of the pandemic when we all shut down and most other viruses besides the COVID-19 didn't circulate very well because of the social restrictions that occurred during the early part of the pandemic. So everybody gets EBD-68 multiple times in their life, and it is out there in all years, but there's a biennial every other year peak and then there's a valley the next year, and the peak, and then a valley. So we've seen a biennial circulation pattern since 2014. Okay, so 2020 was actually supposed to be a peak year, and it was missed because of what you just said about the social distancing and everything around COVID-19 that caused it not to happen. But that would mean that if we kept on track, that 22 this year would be a peak year. Do we know? Well, we don't know. And, and it's one of those things that there are a lot of things that were upset by the pandemic. And we know that RSV, which is another respiratory virus that usually occurs every winter, occurred in the summer of 2021 instead of the deep winter. So a lot of things were thrown off track. And so there's ongoing surveillance to see. And I don't want to give people the impression that there was no circulation of EBD-68 in 2020. It just was a very low detection rate year, and it should have been a peak year. We didn't have a makeup in 2021. Will we have a makeup and a big in 2022? Everybody's expecting it, but Mother Nature doesn't always cooperate. Well, let's hope not. Are there particular risk factors that make certain people more susceptible? Well, the Immunity to EBD-68 is cumulative over the years. You start getting exposed in your first year of life, and almost everybody has antibody to it saying, 
I have had this before. That's what the antibody tells us by the time you're 18 months of age. So each year you will likely be exposed at some point in time. And as you get older, you get better and better immunity. So that translates into like most of the respiratory viruses or even the other enteroviruses that cause non-respiratory disease, you're going to be more likely to be infected the younger you are. Symptomatic disease is also most likely if you have no or incomplete immunity to the strain that happens to circulate that year. If we get away from the age-dependent vulnerability, we also have found out that persons with asthma or a history of asthma tend to have more symptomatic disease, even up through early teens, and that can be a vulnerable population as well. Okay, you said early years. So what is the most common age to get it, like six months, 18 months, five years? Well, there's a likely transient protection against it in children under six months of age because there's some maternal antibody that crosses the placenta during pregnancy, and it's sort of an endowment of protection for the first half year. But after six months, there is an ongoing exposure, and it depends on whether you're in a peak or a non-peak year when you're born and things like that. But we find there's evidence that everybody has had some form of EVD-68 by the middle of their second year. Are there certain times of year where people are most likely to get it? While it does circulate all year round to some extent, in the North America, United States area, 85 to 90 percent of the cases are detected between August and late fall. So it's a late summer through fall season for it, although there's some dribbling of cases that are detected through other months of the year. So when people say, I have a summer cold, could they be talking about this? They sure could. Because it produces symptoms that are so much like its cousin, the rhinoviruses, which are the best known causes of colds all year round, it's hard to distinguish them. So the summer colds and fall colds quite often are related to EBD-68 or one of the rhinoviruses. And how is it spread? Is it like COVID, coughing, sneezing, being too close to someone? It's a respiratory virus. So it it lives in high quantities in respiratory secretions. And unlike other enteroviruses, which the growth of the virus is mostly in the gastrointestinal tract, so that stool would be a way you catch most enteroviruses, contact with stool from an infected person. In EBD-68 which acts more like a rhinovirus, it's in the respiratory tract where it grows, and so respiratory secretions contain the infectious virus. So it's the cough and the droplets that you've heard about during the pandemic that the virus has spread. And the other thing is there's a thing called fomites, and we call them fomites, and they are inanimate objects that have residual secretions on it. And because EV-68 is a non-enveloped virus, it is more stable to drying out. So it survives longer on countertops than envelope viruses. And therefore, if you, you know, touch a doorknob where somebody has just you know, blown their nose on their handkerchief and then they don't wash their hands and they touch that doorknob and you touch it soon afterwards, by fomite spread, you may get it and inadvertently inoculate yourself. I guess that was the idea behind the, in the early pandemic, when we were supposed to wipe everything down with antibacterial wipes or alcohol or something, right? Yeah. The antiviral antiseptics, the high alcohol concentration, rupture viral particles and make those surfaces not places where you can pick up viruses. It turned out that 
SARS-CoV-2 was not quite as stable as people were worried about. And that's why we weren't wiping down our groceries later on in the pandemic, because that's not how it was spread. It was mostly through the air. This is not as contagious, EBD-68, as SARS-CoV-2. So you don't get it by just breathing the air if you're not really close to somebody. It almost takes somebody coughing on you or you touching where the secretions have been laid down and either are wet or dry. Okay, that's interesting. How is it detected? EBD-68 is detected, we're going to go back to the COVID-19 phenomena here, by PCR. And I think we've all become familiar with polymerase chain reaction testing, which is a molecular test that looks for the genetic code of the virus we're trying to find. And so PCR is how it's detected. Now, the catch here is that routine tests for viruses in clinical laboratories do not detect EBD-68 specifically. What they detect is the genus, which includes rhinoviruses and enteroviruses, but not which one specifically. So you can't detect this by just sending off a lab test as a clinician and saying, oh, I want to test for EBD-68. That's not going to happen in a regular clinical lab. So most EBD-68-specific detections are done in research laboratories with specific PCR ingredients that only detect EBD-68. So you have to take one that's positive for the genus and then drill down on it to find out is it EBD-68 or one of the others that is not EBD-68. Is that something that clinicians bother with for a patient that comes in with what seems to be a cold? It's not something that would be routine because if you think about it, why would you spend a couple hundred dollars on a molecular test for something that you don't have a treatment for and is going to get better on its own. The reason we like to know about EBD-68 is that it is associated with some diseases that can be worse than the common cold. And the way it comes about that these are tested for, if it's not in pure research, is that if a cluster of illnesses that seem characteristic of EBD-68 come up, and in that person you think, oh, as a clinician, I want to find out if this is in that family of rhinoviruses, enteroviruses, so I can send it off either to the state laboratory or CDC or have a research group come in and find out, is this an outbreak of EVD-68? And you mentioned that it's not treatable because it's a virus, so there's no antibiotics that would do it any good. So if you do have this, what do you do? Well, most people are not going to know they have it, but because they're going to think it's, oh, I've got another common cold or something similar to that. When somebody is a vulnerable person, say they have asthma and they get a more severe form and they're admitted to the intensive care unit to control the asthma because the asthma attacks that are associated with EBD-68 are remarkably resistant to standard therapies that we use for asthma. And a number of these children end up with the kind of asthma that is in the intensive care unit for multiple days. In those situations, things have been tried, but there are no FDA-approved ways to treat it. It's just supportive in that you try to control the symptoms as much as possible. Having said that, when people are very sick with this, there have been things tried off-label, but that's up to specialists to decide when somebody's in the intensive care unit, whether it's worth trying those things or not. And is it ever fatal? It sounds pretty terrible for severe asthmatics. There are fatalities that occur not the most common thing. It is not like SARS-CoV-2, where there's a high number per year. But a dozen or so children have fatalities that are diagnosed with EBD-68 in peak years. And 
Sometimes they're related to what we call respiratory failure, which means that they've been on ventilators and the asthma cannot be controlled. Or they develop the other kind of manifestation of BVD-68, which is a central nervous system infection, which affects muscles and acts more like a polio, if people remember polio. And it's got a name. It's called acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM for short. All right. So, yes, EVD-68 has been associated with acute flaccid myelitis. What exactly is that relationship? And tell us a little bit more about it, known as AFM. AFM was something that was detected before it was related to any specific virus. There were clusters of children who started off with what we call a prodrome, which is the before the full-blown symptoms occur, but they have nonspecific things, and they were having fever headache, neck pain, back pain, and then five or six days later would develop weakness in one of their limbs or paralysis of the limbs. And occasionally a child would develop enough paralysis that they would not be able to breathe properly. And it conjures up the old pictures we remember of iron lungs for children who had had polio and had a similar kind of sequence of events. And these clusters were not large, but they were occurring in sufficient quantity that public health people decided we better look into what's causing them. And when specimens were collected that could be analyzed, EBD-68 was one of the two viruses that seemed to be associated with AFM. What's the other virus? The other one is an enterovirus. It's an enterovirus A71, and it has been associated with central nervous system disease, not just in the United States, but around the world in small clusters as well. And those two are the ones that have been associated with it the most. AFM is a big deal now, and there's a lot of people at CDC working specifically on that, and it has those peak years, right? It follows a every other year pattern, and we missed 2020 because of COVID with AFM also, correct? Right. There are surveillance systems set up across the United States that are looking specifically for AFM, and what happens is that certain research sites have a prospective process in place that if these kinds of symptoms start showing up, there are teams of people who collect the data, collect the specimens, and ensure that they get to CDC. So there's like an alarm bell that goes off that we have an outbreak that year. And they were occurring in the 2014, 2016, 2018, and then we had the shutdown in 2020, and it didn't occur. That was one of the silver linings of the pandemic. And what we don't know is, are they going to, as you said before, pop up again this year? And the surveillance systems are still in place. And Kansas City is in that network of groups that will be doing the surveillance this coming year and over the next five years as well. So just going back to EVD-68, it has been grouped into clades and subclades. What exactly is a clade? Well, for people who aren't into science, clades, you can think of them as ancestral groups. And of course, I use the fancy word there, but they are groups of viruses that have enough changes that you can tell they're not exactly the same, but they're so closely related that you don't want to break them into a different group. If you think about it from the COVID standpoint, because that's what people are familiar with these days, the variants that we see with SARS-CoV-2 are different clades of the same virus. So there's an EVD-68, and they have letters and numbers after them, like B1, B2, B3, D, and those that get different letters are sufficiently different that we can tell them apart pretty easily, and we may expect them to act differently. 
if there are subclades, that would be B1 versus B2, as opposed to different clades, which would be B versus C versus D. And it all depends on how closely they are related. And if you've ever gone and looked at your own ancestral tree, you know, how the different lineages branch off. And if you are a clade, then you are a cousin. If you are a subclade, you're the cousin's child, most likely, if that makes sense. Yes. So bringing it back to COVID, so we are pretty all familiar now with Omicron B1, and now there's apparently a B2 skittering around out there. So those are clades, right? Well, the B1 and B2 would be subclades. The B would be the clade. Okay, gotcha. Does each clade of EVD68 have a different effect on people? There are subtle differences that are likely, but we don't know all we need to know about these clades yet. The differences are predominantly in the fact that just like, and we're going back to the COVID-19 experience again, that if you've been infected with one clade and then a new clade appears two years later as part of the new biennial peak, you may not be protected against that one. So even if it produces the same kind of disease, your previous experience may not be completely protected. And the less experience you've had over time, the more likely you are to get a symptomatic disease. So it's probably related more to how protected we are from our previous experience than it is that there's a major difference in how they're expressed in human disease. That said, we are still looking into the fact that AFM may be due to certain subclades, but there's not enough data yet to know that for sure. What we can tell you is that Certain clades grow better in certain temperatures, like one clade may grow better at 33 degrees centigrade. And why is that important? Because that means it grows better in the nose, but it doesn't grow well at 37 degrees centigrade, which is, means it won't grow well in your lungs. So that clade would more likely produce an upper respiratory tract infection, and the one that grows at 37 degrees better may more likely produce a lower respiratory tract infection and aggravate asthma and cause pneumonia. Speaking of pneumonia, would any of the pneumonia vaccines protect against this? The pneumonia vaccines are primarily aimed at a thing called streptococcus pneumoniae or pneumococcus, depending on how you want to name it. And those are bacteria that have been the most common cause of bacterial pneumonia in children for the last 50 years. And those are very effective against pneumococcus, but they have no effect on any virus that causes pneumonia. So unfortunately not. And influenza is also one that prevents a viral pneumonia, the influenza vaccine, but it is not cross-protective with EBD-68. Well, that's a pity. Your study is specifically about neutralizing antibodies in EBD-68. What are they and how do they work? This gets back to how do viruses infect people. And viruses infect people by having a sticky end on them, which attaches to a specific site on a human cell called a receptor. And the neutralizing antibodies are aimed at that sticky site on the virus. So if the antibody that we produce or a vaccine produced in the case of influenza or SARS-CoV-2 produces, then we end up with the antibody glomming onto the virus and making that sticky part not available to the receptor. So it covers it over and makes the virus bounce off of the cell rather than sticking and attaching like Velcro. And if it can't stick to the human cell, it can't infect the human cell. So neutralizing antibodies turn out to be 
a barrier to new virus particles getting into our cells. So they are protective. They're thought to be one of the best surrogate markers for protection against subsequent disease or current disease. So having them is a good thing. And it's been one of the major markers that has been followed again in the COVID pandemic as to when we might need a booster dose of vaccine is when if most people are losing that neutralizing antibody, it's a sign that maybe the protection is falling and it might be a good idea to boost them to add to the protection. So we looked at neutralizing antibody because it would say, hey, these people who have neutralizing antibodies in high quantities likely would not get disease even if they were infected. But we also looked at it because it's another marker of how much EBD-68 has been circulating in the community in the last few years. You did a previous study on neutralizing antibodies, D68B1. Bring us up to date on that one. The previous study actually looked at the same viruses that we looked at in this one, except we left out the prototype that we put into the original study. And there were four viruses we looked at there in relation to how many people in Kansas City in a representative population that covered from two years to 86 years had had experience with EBD-68 and had they had experience with the specific virus that caused the 2014 outbreak of severe disease in children, and did they have any to the relatives of that outbreak virus. And so what we showed in that study was that everybody that we tested had antibodies to the strain that circulated in 2014. And these specimens were collected before the outbreak. So the surprising thing was, is that we had an outbreak of severe disease due to a strain of virus to which the population was uniformly antibody positive. Please explain then why there's an outbreak when there was all these neutralizing antibodies. Well, I think it points out the fact that just having some neutralizing antibody doesn't mean you're going to be protected. It probably relates to how much you have. What we did show in that study was that the lower neutralizing antibody titers, lower amounts of antibody, were seen in children under five years of age. But once you hit age 10 and above, there was so much antibody that it likely kept those populations from being sick. And what we saw was that it was mostly in children between the ages of 3 and 14 where the severe disease occurred. And this led us to think there probably is a threshold above which protection occurs, but below which it is incomplete, especially in some children, particularly those who might have asthma. I see. Okay. Well, now tell us about neutralizing antibodies after the 2014 outbreak. In the second study, we decided we needed to look at the children who were even younger because we started at age two because originally we didn't think there was likely to have been a universal experience below two with EBD-68, and that might have led to some of the younger children getting sicker. But in this one, we went down to six months of age and then looked at just children, six months through 17 years of age. And as it turns out, every child we checked, no matter how young they were, thinking again that these are all over six months of age and the maternal antibody is not confounding our results. Six months through 18 years of age, every child had neutralizing antibodies to the outbreak strain and 90% plus had 
cross-neutralizing antibody to those cousin two viruses that we also checked. So this told us that, again, it's not whether you have antibody, but probably how much antibody you have. And the other thing that we noticed was that the titers in the children who were over the age of five were consistently much higher than the ones that we detected before the 2014 outbreak. So there had been ongoing circulation in Kansas City of a strain of EVD-68 that boosted the titers of these older children, even though there weren't outbreaks of disease. So it brought us back around to the idea there's a threshold above which recurrent experiences with the virus boost your antibody titer and keeps you from getting sick. Dr. Harrison, is your antibody level specific to how many times you had D68 or is it that you have a greater immunity reaction to it when you have it? Like some people with the COVID vaccine, you know, depending on variables, have a greater immune response than others. Is that part of what's going on with this neutralizing antibody or is it simply how many times you've had it? It's probably all of the above. So there is a immaturity of the immune system in younger people to where they don't respond with as much antibody. So a nine-month-old is likely not to respond as well as a 19-year-old to the same exposure of an infection. That said, as we also learned from SARS-CoV-2, the more severe your initial infection, the more of that virus your immune system saw, the more it usually responds. So there's a combination of how mature is your immune system, how much of the virus antigen that you're trying to produce neutralizing antibody against did you see. So it's probably a mixture of that and the number of times you see it, because we know, as we've all seen with the COVID-19, boosters, meaning I got initially exposed and then I got exposed again six months to a year later, you not only get the amount you got the first time, but the booster really does boost it. It's like one exposure gives you a certain amount. Boosting, it gives you three to five times that amount. So you end up with ultimately much better protection from having a primary or initial exposure and then a boost later. So long way of saying it's a combination of how mature and competent is your immune system, how many times have you seen it, and how much virus did you see with each encounter. Well, we've talked some about your study now. You want to tell us a little bit more about it, how you went about it, and what specifically you were looking for? Anything we haven't covered already? Well, this was a study that we decided to build on the information from the first study. And as we talked about, we wanted to see what happened in the kids who were born after 2014. So they were a group that we wanted to use as the canary in the gold mine to say, did EDD-68 2014 outbreak strain seemed to continue to circulate because if it didn't, then we wouldn't expect all those children born after the outbreak to have titers of the antibody, and they all did. So we extended the age down below the two years down to six months. So that was one purposeful change in what happened. We also didn't look at the adults because the adults all had such high titers that you couldn't tell them apart. And it probably explains why older adults don't get disease from this virus because they have such high titers universally. And we selected these specimens from Sierra of children who were demographically 
similar to the overall population of Kansas City. So we had pre-selected slots to make sure we represented black, Hispanic, white, in proportions that were equal to those that we've seen in the most recent census. And we spread them out age-wise the same way, so it represented the census as best we could tell. And that way we thought we got a representative population that would allow us to say something more general about what this does. The first population that we looked at was also geared to the census, but was only over two, but it went all the way up. So this focused on children, and it was with the intent to make sure we got that bit of data to say, after 2014, kids are exposed or not exposed to the outbreak strain. So is there anything else you found? Well, the other thing we found was that the amount of antibody to the outbreak strain and to the related strains was age-dependent. And much like we found that the older you were, the higher, the tighter was in the previous study, we found that same thing in this study. But what was kind of interesting was that the most distant strain, the D clade from the original outbreak virus, which was a B1 clade, that antibody to the D1 clade was lower, especially in the youngest children. So this suggests to us that the antibody that was neutralizing the D clade was really induced by exposure to the 2014 B1 clade, but cross-protected, just like you can have cross-protection from close relatives. I say that the D was the farthest distant compared to the other virus we checked, but in fact, it's still about 85 to 90% similar at the genetic level. So there is some small change in the D virus that makes the antibody produced to the B1 virus not as protective. And it points out to us that these shifts in the clade, and the D clade has become more common since 2018, means that we will not be as protected from our experience with the 2014 outbreak virus if D is the dominant strain that circulates this next year. You detected higher titers of B2 and D clades in children with a history of asthma. Why is this? That's the million-dollar question, because the children with asthma were the ones who had the most severe disease. And if we just made a simple hypothesis that, oh, they had the most severe disease, they saw the most virus, they produced the most antibody, you would expect that they would produce the most antibody to all of them, including the outbreak virus but they didn't produce it to all of them uniformly. It was actually to the ones that were not the dominant strain in 2014. So the cousins, they had higher antibody, and it suggests that children with asthma's immune system see the virus differently than people without asthma. And there's some evidence to this from rhinoviruses, where we know that a particular strain of virus, the Rhinovirus C produces more trouble in children with asthma than rhinovirus B. So there are differences in viruses that trigger somewhat altered responses in children with asthma. And so there's a clue in there about the immune response of asthmatics. And that's one of the things we need to drill down on in future studies. You mentioned that titers increased with patient age, but now you've said that there's this new D-clade that hasn't circulated as much. Will Older adults, adults now get D68, D-clade more frequently? I don't think they'll get it more frequently, but there is such a large titer of neutralizing antibody in adults 
that even if it is only, say, 60% as effective at neutralizing, they're going to have plenty to do the job. It's the younger children who don't have as high a titer. If they lose 40% of the efficacy at neutralization, then that will lower their threshold to potentially allow them to have symptomatic disease. All right, bottom line here, how can people protect themselves from getting sick? The best way to keep from getting sick is to keep from getting the virus. And since the virus is in respiratory secretions and those things we call fomites, it goes back to good hygiene. And if you've been doing good hygiene for the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, you know what to do. You need to wash your hands. If you're around people who are sick, you ask them to cough away from you. If you're sick, cough into your elbow. It's those things that we do every year when flu and other things come around. The other thing to remember is that this virus likes to infect through respiratory linings. And what's the most exposed respiratory lining that you have? Your eyes. The lining of your eyes is probably the easiest way to give it to yourself. And how many times a day do you rub your eyes? Lots. Just think in terms of don't touch your eyes if you haven't recently washed your hands. That's probably the most significant way I can think of to keep from getting EBD-68 and most other respiratory viruses as well. That's a very important piece of information. Thank you. What do you think are the most important takeaways from your study for public health? This is one of the unknown viruses to the public. And when they hear about funding for studies, and if somebody in Congress was to say, well, look, they spent all this money to look for EBD-68, remember that there's a reason for that, and that even though it may not hit you every day in your neighborhood, these viruses that you may not recognize need to have ongoing surveillance because outbreaks of paralytic disease and severe asthma disease need to be followed so when outbreaks occur, that responses can be made and that more information can be derived so that we know what is the threshold for protection. Do we need a vaccine for this? Who are the people who need a vaccine if we need a vaccine? These are questions that can only be answered by collecting the data prospectively, looking forward, and having these centers around the country that can be sentinels for such things. I think, to me, that's the most important public health bit of information is that we need to maintain our surveillance system so that when unexpected things occur, we're ready. We don't want to be caught unaware. If we learned anything from SARS-CoV-2, it's that having a robust infrastructure ready to respond could really make a big difference. How do you hope your findings are going to be used going forward? Our findings suggest that there is a threshold for protection, and we'd like to see more systematic studies of antibody in relation to the time of infection. We didn't know exactly when these children were infected. And if we could do a prospective study to say, oh, we know this person was infected, what happens to their antibody? And we need to look at the other side of the immune system, the cell-mediated immunity, which is where our memory for these viruses resides. So we need to do prospective studies, knowing when the infection occurs, follow the antibody titers, follow how your cell-mediated immunity continues to produce memory and protection. These are key elements to be able to decide whether we need and if we do, what kind of vaccines would be necessary. Dr. Harrison, tell us about your job, where you work, and how you became interested in enterovirus research. Well, I work at a large freestanding children's hospital in the middle of the country, in the Midwest, and we do 
consultations on complicated infections in the hospital, and we have an outpatient clinic that also deals with questions about whether certain disease processes are occurring and questions that primary care providers have that can't be answered without more specialized intervention or diagnostics. So that's our main job. But we also do teaching. We teach residents and medical students. We also have a robust research program, and we look at how new vaccines are produced, how we can look at antibiotic resistance. We do studies on antibiotic stewardship. It's a very exciting position to be in because you're not locked into one aspect. There are many ways you can take your intellectual curiosity and generate new data that helps children while you're at the same time providing clinical care at some of the highest levels. To end this here, what are some activities that you're looking forward to now that COVID restrictions are changing? Well, I've missed my time at the beach. I've missed my time fly fishing in the Rockies, and I'd like to get back to more of that. And the big family gatherings we used to have, I got to get back to some of doing that too. But most of all, I want to get back to kayaking. I miss my kayaking. It seems like kayaking was something you could do on your own even during COVID, no? Well, I can, but and I have a little pond out back. But, you know, you get to the end of the pond pretty quick. And if you go out to places where the other people are kayaking, it seems like you inadvertently always run into somebody who's coughing, sneezing. And I'm of an age where I'm in that vulnerable population. So I've been more of a hermit than most people. I understand completely. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Harrison. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the March 2022 article, Neutralizing Enterovirus D68 Antibodies in Children After 2014 Outbreak, Kansas City, Missouri, USA, online at cdc.gov slash EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.